Welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate. I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Unger-Sargon. Today we are talking about a highly topical subject, qualified immunity. Not necessarily the most uh, loose-lipped, rolls-off-the-tongue subject in the world, so to speak. But nonetheless, it is highly important to our national dialogue, especially in the aftermath of the Derek Chauvin verdict heard around the world. So, Badi, why don't you kind of uh, lay the lay the groundwork for us a little bit? Tell us a little bit about what qualified immunity is and why it matters for our lives here. Yeah, so we're talking about policing because America had a pretty historic week last week. Derek Chauvin, the former Minnesota police officer who killed George Floyd, was convicted on all three counts, two murder charges and one manslaughter charge. And the trial was really kind of a referendum on American policing in a way. So the prosecution closed out the trial by telling the jury, this is not an anti-police prosecution. This is a pro-police prosecution. And he really stressed that. He stressed that policing is a noble profession and that what Chauvin did was not policing. It was murder. And then the defense kind of made the opposite case. They stressed that what Derek Chauvin did was what any reasonable police officer would do. He kept saying any reasonable police officer would have done that. So when the jury voted to convict, it was kind of like a vote of confidence in America's police force in a way, or at least where we hope and believe America's police force can go, what it can become. That's kind of how I I saw the trial um, and and in the wake of the trial, we're now seeing a, a renewed call for qualified immunity as part of a renewed push for police reform. So, Josh, I'm going to do my best to define qualified immunity in layman's terms. And then you, the expert, the lawyer, the clerk from the, su- the Supreme Court can can tell me whether I got it right or got it wrong. OK, I look forward to it. All right. So here's my best attempt to define it. So. Qualified immunity stems from the fact that on the one hand, government officials like police officers are authorized in some cases to use force against citizens. Okay, so for example, they're allowed to search and detain someone who's been suspected of a crime. But the Constitution also protects us from abuses of power. And one of those abuses is unreasonable search and seizure. So we're actually protected from that under the Fourth Amendment. So the law says that someone who feels that a police officer has violated their constitutional rights can sue that police officer in civil court for damages. But there's another law, and that law has made it particularly difficult to sue cops on the logic that it would kind of get in the way of them doing their jobs if they have to stop and worry like, oh, am I going to get sued? Right. You know, so they have to stop and, and that could really harm their ability to be good police officers. So that second law that makes it difficult to sue for damages against a police officer that you think violated your rights is called qualified immunity. And it says that in order for a police officer to be sued in civil court, the person suing them has to show that a previous officer did, if not the exact same thing, but something incredibly similar, and it was deemed unconstitutional. And so some people feel like now the standard is too high and it's too hard to get redress for a cop who you feel violated your rights. And those people want to get rid of qualified immunity. How did I do? Not so bad. Not so bad. Uh, just, a, just, just, a, just, just a quick point of clarification, lest I get accused of letting false uh, characterizations go to my head. I, I, I am not a Supreme Court clerk. I, I, I clerked on the Federal Court of Appeals. Um, but in any event, um, yeah. 
Close, <laughs> close enough, I suppose. Okay. So um, the origin of all of this, um, and, and just to kind of lay the groundwork here for the viewers, Derek Chauvin was prosecuted. It was a criminal trial. A qualified immunity does not deal with crime. It does not deal with criminal codes. It deals with actually civil litigation where um, you know, a, a, uh, a non-governmental official uh, is the plaintiff bringing a lawsuit. So the origin of all of this um, is a, a Reconstruction Era statute uh, no, that lawyers refer to as just 1983 or, or Section 1983. I can quickly, very quickly read from the, from, from the statute here, quote, any citizen of the United States or other person within the jurisdiction thereof, here's the key phrase, to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution. In other words, what Section 1983 does is it allows you a civil cause of action for a deprivation of your constitutional rights, at least as the court in a 1961 case called Monroe versus Pape interprets that statutory language I just read. So we're in the 1960s here, and um, the, it's the Warren Court. It's a time of kind of great upheaval here. Fourth Amendment jurisprudence is kind of changing left and right. And six years after Monroe, in a, in a case called Pearson versus Ray, the court kind of f fabricates, I mean, it makes up, the qualified immunity critics love to point this out, it's true, it's, it is totally made up. They point out what we now call qualified immunity, which builds in this prong, whereby under a 1983 cause of action, the plaintiff need not only show that you have an actual constitutional right violated, but you have to show that that right was, quote, clearly established under relevant law. So that's, if that, it's very abstruse. It's kind of in the weeds. I, I have always been a little confused as to kind of the national attention that this fairly uh, arcane legal doctrine tends to get, but that, it's the clearly established prong that's really kind of doing the work here. That is really kind of the crux of what the QI skeptics, the qualified immunity critics on both the left and the libertarian leaning right tend to get at here. Um, but hopefully we've done a decent job of kind of laying the groundwork for you. That's enough from us, Badia. Let's kind of dive into this debate. What do you think? Yeah, we're so excited because we have Billy Binion from Reason Magazine and Jim Copeland from the Manhattan Institute, and they're going to come on and debate qualified immunity. Stick with us. We'll be right back. So, Badia, we are here in the aftermath of the Derek Chauvin verdict heard around the world, or certainly at least heard around the country. And we're talking about a very closely related topic, qualified immunity. So why don't you tell us about our debaters for today? Yeah, we're really thrilled to have Billy Binion from Reason Magazine and Jim Copeland from the Manhattan Institute. Uh, they've both written a lot about this topic. They're holding in it, but they're going to try really hard to talk to us at our level about it. Um, welcome, you guys. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. So I wonder if you could each start by telling us what your position on qualified immunity is. Let's start with you, Billy. Sure. So qualified immunity, for a little background, is a court-constructed doctrine um, that essentially says the government officials, and I'm going to say here that it's not just police officers, it's just state actors in general, are protected from lawsuits if the misconduct alleged against them by various victims was not, quote-unquote, clearly established in previous case law. So in layman's terms, essentially what that means is that a victim of police brutality or a victim of a corrupt college administrator who might trample on someone's free speech rights, uh, those victims are not allowed to bring their lawsuits before a jury unless the manner in which their rights were violated and the factual circumstances surrounding their cases are not outlined almost exactly in previous case law. And so I'll give you an example. There were two cops um, in Fresno, California in 2013 
who allegedly stole, I think, $225,000 while carrying out a search warrant. And um, although the panel on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said something to the effect of, you know, you know, you should have known that stealing was wrong. Everyone knows that stealing is wrong. Um, the victims are going to have no legal right to sue because there is no case law on the books that says expressly that stealing is wrong. And so those victims were left with no recourse to get back those damages. Um, it's an extremely low standard to hold our government officials to. It kind of assumes, in my view, that they're stupid. And we should demand better. And especially anyone who cares about limited government, we should care about holding our state actors accountable. Jim? I agree in part, and, and, and I just want to sort of qualify what we're talking about with qualified immunity. The basic... Um, I think distinction here uh, that's important is we're talking about one statute uh, enacted in 1871 in the wake of, of the Civil War, trying to protect freed slaves, principally designed to empower uh, the federal government to attack the KKK, but also had some carryover provisions that allow uh, lawsuits in federal court. And of course, the, the government was worried, the Congress was worried, uh, I think rightly, that the uh, recently rebelling state governments wouldn't be, uh, you couldn't count on them to protect uh, the newly freed slaves. But it's sort of a catch-all provision, um, very rarely used uh, for, for its early years. The first 65 years, you had 19 cases under the statute. Uh, at the time when the Supreme Court broadened it in 1961, you had a couple hundred. Um, by 1995, you had 76,000. So uh, a burgeoning area of litigation. And the Supreme Court, as, it, as it's done in other areas of law with these sort of open and 19th century statutes, sort of tried to cast parameters around it. And the, the baseline parameter that the Supreme Court established in 1967 was, was sort of a simple uh, principle on retroactivity. In other words, you... Uh, do something according to a state law. You're following the law of your state uh, and it, as a police officer, for instance, and, and that law tells you to do this. And then a federal court comes in afterwards and says, uh, oh, wait a minute, uh, that was unconstitutional in a different case. Oh, okay, so, so we, we don't want you then to be able to, to sue um, that individual government agent for damages. Um, it, it's worth pointing out that judges, legislators, prosecutors have absolute immunity. So this same statute they can't sue under. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that there may be other ways to collect other than these sort of constitutional claims under this 1871 statute that we're talking about uh, when it talks about things like theft. I mean, I mean, if you look at that actual case that he referenced, the Jessup case, it's not clear uh, and the concurring opinion makes this very clear in the decision. It's not clear uh, that uh, what we're talking about was a constitutional violation in the first place. It was clearly a bad thing. Clearly, they ought to be able to get the money back. But, but, but the Supreme Court has, in another line of cases, says that a seizure is a single act, not a continuous fact. And so that's sort of what was going on there, although it's not the way the majority decided the case. But, it, but you know, these, these cases are very complicated, and, and I don't want to oversimplify it. Um, but I do think it's important to hold the government accountable uh, in various ways. So just kind of reset the room here. Um, you know, speaking as a lawyer by training, I clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. I literally worked on qualified immunity cases. Just make sure we're all on the same page here. So what Jim is talking about, there's an, eight, there's an 1871 statute, Section 1983 of that statute allows for litigation for deprivation of constitutional rights. For roughly the first 90 years of that statute's existence, it was not used for direct plaintiff side uh, litigation against police officers, other governmental actors. It was a case called Monroe versus Pape in 1961, 
where the court eight to one interprets under color of is basically meaning that uh, anytime a police officer or other, other governmental actor violates your rights or your putative rights, you, you have a cause of action. Okay. Six years later, and Billy, I'm building up to a question for you here, the court in Pearson versus Ray first kind of uh, unveils what becomes this two this two prong analysis, uh, which is what is kind of the modern qualified immunity doctrine, where the first prong that a plaintiff trying to sue a police officer or someone else has to show is that there was a violation of an actual constitutional right. The second prong is the infamous kind of clearly established prong. Most people, when they talk about ending or abolishing qualified immunity, talk about the clearly established prong. So, I, I you know, I suspect you, you and Jim probably share some overlap here, but why don't you kind of just elaborate a little bit on what specifically you object to about the clearly established prong? Sure, yeah. So for, in order for a defendant to get qualified immunity, a judge has to say to them, yes, you violated someone's constitutional rights, but that victim is now legally barred from suing in court because he or she cannot find a court decision with almost the exact same facts. So I'm going to push back on Jim a little bit when he says that these aren't constitutional questions. The the example I mentioned uh, previously with the $225,000, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals absolutely said that was a constitutional violation. That's how they ruled. And if we were to get rid of qualified immunity, if we were to get rid of this clearly established fact pattern requirement, you still would have to prove that your rights were violated. It's not like anyone can just waltz into a federal courthouse and say, I don't like the police, so I'm going to sue. I'll give you another example. There was a, a case in Georgia where a sheriff's deputy um, shot a 10-year-old kid who was laying down as ordered. Um, they were chasing a fugitive who had no relation to that child. Uh, and the sheriff's deputy, his name is Matthew Vickers, he shot this dog twice. The dog, by all witness accounts, was not threatening him. Uh, when he actually shot him the second time, he was walking away from him. Um, and he hit a 10-year-old in the back of the knee. And so the mom is left to pay for an orthopedic surgeon and has been totally financially destroyed by these surgeries. The federal court in that situation said that absolutely, yes, this is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. This is excessive force. This is absolutely a constitutional issue. However, there is no case law on the books that says if you shoot someone while aiming at a dog, you know, that's unconstitutional. It's very, very granular. Uh, and it ends up, you know, feeding these these victims of egregious government malfeasance to the dogs. Right. So, Jim, I want you to respond to that, but I want to sort of take it out of that one example and ask a broader question as well, which is, um, why are we protecting people who potentially violated a citizen's constitutional rights? Why the energy being put into qualified or unqualified or any kind of immunity for people who have the monopoly on authorized state power? Why isn't the country at a place where we're now hyper aware of uh, police brutality, hyper hungry for some form of police accountability? Isn't this a moment to really be moving past this qualified immunity? Well, I agree that, that police accountability is important, and I've written on this in various contexts and suggested various ways where, where this uh, can happen. I, I do want to correct Billy on this. It's, it's just simply not the case that either of the cases he's alluding to had a finding of a constitutional violation uh, by by the, the deciding appellate court. It's just not the case. And the reason for that is that uh, in another case, Pearson v. Callahan, uh, decided much more recently, the Supreme Court 
decided, uh, reversing a, a prior precedent, a prior decision of the court, uh, it decided that, that you did not, in fact, have to reach the constitutional question if you could establish, if you could show that it was not a clearly established right. And, and, and I think part of what we may want to do is, is rethink that precedent, notwithstanding it was unanimous Supreme Court uh, reversing itself only several years after the, the first decision. Uh, that said they had to reach the constitutional question, but uh, because I think it would clear up some of the confusion in some of these cases. Uh, so it's not the case that the court in either of those instances, uh, in fact, reached the constitutional question. They punted it, and and the cops, uh, you know, were, were pursuing it. So, yeah, it was tragic that the kid got shot. I think the kid should definitely get money. I think Breonna Taylor should have gotten money, and that's notwithstanding, regardless of what the constitutional doctrine is, I just think if someone gets someone who's innocent gets shot by a police agent or a state agent, they should get compensation. I think that's the, the, the that should be the rule. But, but the, what we're talking about here are sort of these complex constitutional questions. And if you've got cops chasing a suspect and a pit bull comes at the cops and they fire and they, they miss and hit somebody else, um, that, that, you know, that's the sort of constitutional question they're, they're presented with. But again, they're not actually reaching that question in that case. Um, and, and so that sort of analysis may, may, may be misplaced. But, 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 but I, I think, you know, just, just coming back to it, I mean, as I said before, um, there are competing interests here, and the public safety is one of them. And while the U.S. has dramatically uh, reduced the murder rate and violent crime rate since the early 1990s, and, and that's still the case in most places, notwithstanding a recent uptick in crime, um, it, it, it's, it's, uh, we still have a much more violent society with a much higher murder rate than other developed countries. So there's a, there's a very real cost, I think, uh, to not allowing police to do their job. And police are uh, facing life and death decisions every day. Again, this doesn't only apply to police. The other question is just sort of one of a fundamental fairness. And we can talk about redress to people who've been injured. And I, as I said, I think generally we ought to be fairly liberal in doing that. But the flip side is the Supreme Court, as we've just been discussing in some of these cases, has flipped back and forth in its positions over time. Um, so if the Supreme Court uh, for instance, with Miranda v. Arizona, this is the case that you've all, everyone who's, who's watched TV procedural police shows has seen, uh, you have the right to remain silent. Supreme Court comes up with that in the 1960s. It wasn't a clear right in the Constitution before that. You know, to, to empower lawsuits from people who weren't read those rights for money damages after the fact would be somewhat nonsensical. Similarly, I, you know, I, I have issues with, um, uh, the, the court's current doctrine on affirmative action. But if a college admissions officer is relying on the court's precedent saying the diversity rationale supports affirmative action and, 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 is, and, is, and is doing affirmative action the way the Supreme Court has previously said, and then the Supreme Court changes its mind and says, oh, no, wait, that was unconstitutional, to hold that individual liable, I think it at least, you know, it at least should make some common sense to people as to why the Supreme Court went in that direction. That doesn't mean that it hasn't gone too far in, in where it's actually finding clearly established in some of these specific cases. Yeah, I'm just going to clarify a couple things. Yes, it is true that these panels can often kind of punt the constitutional question. Um, in doing so, they kind of dance around it, but heavily imply that it is a constitutional violation. I, in the in the one that you know where they stole hundreds of thousands of dollars, they said something literally to the to the effect of these officers should have known that stealing is morally wrong. 
The only thing, to Jim's point, that allows them to dance around the constitutional question and just kind of imply it was a violation is because of qualified immunity. If you got rid of qualified immunity, then that would be the judge's job. The judge's job would be in that moment to determine if it was a constitutional violation. And even, even further, there have been cases where they have determined it was a constitutional violation specifically and not danced around it and given qualified immunity. I don't know if Jim is familiar with this case, but there was a cop, um, it was a decision that came out in August of last year. Um, a cop destroyed a man's car while performing a two hour long kind of bogus drug search um, that the judge said violated the Fourth Amendment explicitly because the, the cop in question made up a call he had received that he said gave him you know probable cause to search this vehicle. He never received such a call. Um, but because there was no case on the books, he had no right to sue. Um, another example. We all love stories. Um, a woman calls for an officer's assistance. This is a very famous qualified immunity case. An officer comes to the scene, I believe it was at a pool, and that same woman, the same woman who called for help, eventually tries to walk away from him. So he grabs her in a bear hug, slams her to the ground, and breaks her collarbone and knocks her out in the process. Um, so even though other decisions in that same federal circuit had already established that you cannot use such excessive force merely because someone is walking away from you, the court said that it wasn't clearly established in this case because the previous cases didn't have a deputy that used a takedown maneuver to quote unquote, arrest a suspect who ignored the deputy's instruction to get back here. It is that specific. And that case also involved a constitutional violation as outlined in previous court precedents. Um, but because those precedents weren't extremely specific, that woman who broke her collarbone couldn't sue for her medical injuries. It's just patently absurd. So we need to take a break. Uh, this is the debate from Newsweek. We will be right back. We're talking to Billy Binion from Reason Magazine and Jim Copeland from the Manhattan Institute about qualified immunity. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is the debate a podcast brought to you by Newsweek. We're talking to Billy Binion from Reason Magazine and Jim Copeland from the Manhattan Institute about qualified immunity. So I want to ask you both, um, is this actually the most pressing question about policing in America today? What would each of you say is your biggest concern when it comes to law enforcement? And what is the best solution? Is getting rid of qualified immunity or keeping it actually up there? Let's start with you, Billy. Yeah, so... Here's the thing, getting rid of qualified immunity is not going to magically solve all police malfeasance. It's just not. Um, one thing that I write about a lot at Reason is police accountability. And so if we wanna be able to hold police and all state actors accountable, yes, it is absolutely crucial that we're able to do so in civil court. And the reason I say that specifically when it comes to police officers, there is an extremely low chance that a police officer that violates someone's rights will face criminal charges. Derek Chauvin, I thought it was the right verdict. It is the exception and not the rule. And so what that means is that victims should have another avenue to do so. They should have the civil court system to sue for damages. But qualified immunity, immunity pardon, often you know, blocks that road off too. So we have given them no avenue for accountability. No, I don't think it's going to solve all the problems. Um, but I think if we want to increase trust in law enforcement, which has obviously been very degraded, we have to be able to hold them accountable when they violate our rights. Yeah, I mean, the question that was asked, do I think it's the most important uh, policing reform idea out there? I don't. I agree with Billy. It's not a magic silver bullet. Um, uh, you know, I, I am on record as suggesting that, that Congress ought to 
reform this area of law. And, and part of that is just my general uh, position that, that our elected legislators ought to principally be our policymakers. And you know, we shouldn't be, rather than having the Supreme Court trying to argue over its precedents or, or tease out the meaning uh, of a law written in 1871 based against that legal backdrop, I mean, Congress ought to try to wrestle these questions and come up with the right uh, legal liability rules. I, I think that's the right way to proceed. And, and I do think there's some scope for increasing liability, both to the individual officers, but also uh, to, to municipal police departments. But, but, but part of the reason why I don't think it's going to be a, a sea change uh, if, if qualified immunity is, is, is relaxed or even abolished um, is precisely uh, when we're talking about this individual level qualified immunity doctrine, I mean, as it is in the overwhelming majority of these cases, the officer is indemnified uh, by the, the the municipality anyway. In other words, what that means is if if, if you find against the officer, uh, it's the municipality that puts the bill. Now, now you could easily argue, and I think it's a it's a plausible argument to suggest, well, you know, if the municipality is on the hook for all this money, um, you know, they're going to start uh, disciplining cops better. Um, you know, I, unfortunately, I'm I, I'm skeptical that that would happen to a to a to a sweeping degree. Um, and, and the reason is we the, the power of police employee unions, like like other public employee unions, is, is is quite strong. And one of the other areas of law I've I've looked at and a policy I've looked at is is something is is like the public pension funding system. And notwithstanding that this is a ticking time bomb that threatens to squeeze out the entirety of of public budgets in state and municipal government. Um, there, there's been very little effort uh, to actually try to fix that problem. And, and we've seen time and again, politicians sort of punt downfield uh, and, and say, well, okay, the next politicians may have to handle this problem. So I, mean, I think the more direct way uh, to try to reform police would be to re-examine the way we handle public employee unions and public employee bargaining and try to, to stop the root of the problem, which is that it's very difficult to weed out bad cops if you make bad hires. Um, so I think that in combination with better hiring, better pay and professionalization of the police and better training uh, is the better approach. And it doesn't mean that qualified immunity reform couldn't augment that. I just don't think it's the most important reform. So just to kind of underscore an, an important point here, lest it gets kind of caught in the weeds, folks like Jim and I, who I think broadly agree on kind of law and order, tough on crime kind of issues, even folks like us are not necessarily kind of blind defenders of modern qualified immunity doctrine. In fact, from an originalist perspective, original public meaning perspective, we want to go full law just for a quick second here. Justice Clarence Thomas's concurrence from the 2017 Ziegler versus Abbasi case is almost certainly correct as an original matter, where he basically okay. says... That qualified immunity is, is it is obviously, it is transparently a judge-fabricated, judge-concocted doctrine. Justice Thomas would have us go back to the to the common law immunities that existed in 1871. But, and here's where I'm getting to a question for you, Billy. Here's the issue. We can acknowledge that on the one hand, while simultaneously acknowledging, from my perspective at least, the truth of a Scalia-Thomas joint dissent in the 1998 case of Crawford L. versus Britain, where Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas basically say that unless we're willing to, and unless we're willing to go back and review all of the kind of Warren Court era Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, all this kind of criminal procedure jurisprudence that probably went off the rails here, 
it might make sense to actually just kind of keep this status quo in place for the foreseeable future, no matter how unfortunate it is. And this is it's kind of similar to a sentiment that Justice Alito himself said in the uh, Janus case, that's the famous labor union case of 2018, where Justice Alito says, quote, we will not engage in this halfway originalism. And, you know, this reminds me, like I said, I, I, I clerked on the Fifth Circuit, worked on some of these cases. My former boss, Judge uh, Jim Ho, he, he had a line from a 2019 case where he said, quote, originalism for plaintiffs, but not for police officers is not principled judging. Originalism for me, but not for thee is not originalism at all. So my question for you, Billy, is... It doesn't the kind of abolish or reform qualified immunity crowd kind of just conveniently ignore some of this? Uh, don't they kind of just pretend that all of our current constitutional doctrine in areas like Fourth Amendment searches and seizures for police officers is all fine and dandy? I mean, it's, surely if we're going to go originalist and qualified immunity, we ought to also go originalist on the Fourth Amendment, right? I guess one of the biggest one of the biggest um, pushback points I get from people. Uh, that kind of come from that perspective is this idea that you'll have vacuous lawsuits kind of flooding the courts. Um, and there are two main reasons that I just simply think that's not the case. And I would say it's directly contradicted by the data, actually. Um, a study in the Yale Law Journal, for instance, looked at, I think, 1,200 examples of police misconduct cases over the last several years. Um, and most actually failed without qualified immunity being a factor at all. So it's important to remember that in order for someone to bring a civil suit against a government official, they will have to prove that rights violation occurred. Um, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence as it stands is, in my view, quite deferential to the police. I'm not sure if you disagree. Um, but qualified immunity is just that second part where we say, okay, you had your rights violated, and now you have to pinpoint that hyper-specific court precedent that outlines the facts of your case almost identically. Um, so the bulk of people would not even overcome that first hurdle where they have to prove that a constitutional right violation occurred to begin with. Um, and the other point I'll make is, like I said earlier, you cannot just kind of sashay your way into a federal courthouse and file your suit. You need an attorney who would likely work on a contingency basis, uh, meaning that they only get paid if they win. Um, and it's hard to find someone who's going to shoulder those court costs and work that time if you have a bogus case that wouldn't withstand the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence as it stands today, which, like I said, I find to be very deferential to the police. Um, so you'd have to find a lawyer who believes that a judge would say, yes, your rights were violated and you should be able to make that argument to a jury of your peers who also, by the way, have a track record in these cases of being highly skeptical of plaintiffs, which is the way the system was supposed to work. And we should let it work the way it was designed. We should allow these people to plead their cases. I'll, I'll add that, you know, overcoming qualified immunity does not render any sort of judgment. It does not render, you know, your claim vindicated. It just brings, gives you the right to bring that before a jury of your peers and to have them decide after hearing all the facts of the matter. So let me ask you both one final question. Uh, this has been so interesting and great. Um, I feel a little bit like this is a proxy battle for, for something else. I mean, you both kind of spoke about how this isn't even the top of your list in terms of how to reform the police, what needs to be done. And it seems almost like it's a proxy battle for how we are talking about or thinking about the police. So on the one hand, you have the pro-qualified immunity crowd, which, yes, there's nobody on this on this call right now who's totally pro, but the, the side who feels that it's important to make sure that the police 
are empowered to do their jobs and that qualified immunity protects them from having to stop in the middle of policing and worry about, am I going to get sued for doing this thing that is the right thing to do right now? And on the other hand, you have the people saying like, no, it's really important that we have maximum amounts of accountability, that we protect citizens from the police. So on the one hand, you have people trying to protect police from the citizenry. And on the other hand, you have people trying to protect the citizenry from the police, which is sort of a larger question we're having in America right now um, about the police, especially amid this spike in crime that a lot of us have noticed. So I'm wondering to what extent you guys agree with this analysis. Um, Let's start with you, Jim, and then we'll go to you, Billy. Yeah, I mean, I do think to some degree this is a, is a proxy fight. I think it's the sort of thing that, uh, you know, frankly, it, it appeals to lawyers and it appeals to legal intellectuals because because there's there's intellectual lifting. I mean, the stuff Josh was talking about. I mean, yeah, Clarence Thomas is pointing to a a a, a, a study of an article written by a law professor, Will Bodie, who goes back to the 1871 law and tries to piece this all together. Um, and, and that's very interesting intellectually. Um, it, 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 but, but to look back to the 1871 law in a wildly different legal regime to try to uh, figure out how we're going to constrain police today, I think is, is a weird way to approach this, right? And so, so I think when, we're, when I'm thinking about police reform, I think, you know, how can we reduce these error rates, including, you know, the necessary false positives we get that are race-based? And, and the reason we get those to a significant degree is because we have underlying uh, violent crime rates that are disparate uh, across various factors. The, the same reason why males get shot more by cops and males get searched more by cops. So, so you know, th- these are these are very tricky questions. I think they're they're fraught with a lot of uh, angst for people. Um, and 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 the qualified immunity piece of it, I, I do think it's important. I think Josh's analysis was was square on here. The law has changed a lot since 1871, and so I never would underestimate the ability of of the plaintiffs bar to gin up new lawsuits. I mean, when 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 the class action rule was created by a couple law professors, they thought the class action lawsuit was almost never going to be used. Well, when in fact it's been used a lot, and we all know that. So I mean, at the end of the day. There are some distinct things about this, and, and one thing we may want to think about if we tweak qualified immunities to think about something like the fee shifting, because this doesn't, in fact, work like other sorts of tort litigation lawsuits like Billy was talking about, uh, where a plaintiff's lawyer is solely looking at uh, contingent fees. I mean, in fact, uh, there's a one-way fee shift that Congress put in in 1976 for civil rights litigation that's driven a lot of uh, lawsuits into this 19. 19- uh, 83 sort of, of of lawsuit rubric. So we want to think about those. Brian Fitzpatrick, another law professor, sort of has, has brought that point up, and I think it's important to think about. But 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 by and large, I, I agree. I think I think Professor Schwartz's study, you know, this is less than four percent of the cases actually use qualified immunity. I think is instructive. My my deputy director Ralph Mangual and I wrote about this last summer in National Review and said, I mean, listen. Um, Qualified immunity doesn't come into play in that many cases, um, so I, so I, we think that the risk of reform is 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 somewhat low. We want to be thoughtful and careful about how we do it, realizing that there are competing interests, including both public budgets and public safety. Um, and, and then when we do that, though, we shouldn't expect um, a, a monumental sea change in police behavior. At the end of the day, we've got almost 700,000 cops interacting with 50 million people annually and executing more than 10 million arrests annually. And in that sort of situation, mistakes are going to happen. Some ill-intentioned and malicious and others simply matters of tragic mistake. 
I'll start off by saying that, yes, I agree the law has changed since the 1870s. Um, I guess what I'd say, though, is that it shouldn't be Supreme Court, the Supreme Court making those changes. You know, they made the first change in 67 and that really broad, clearly established change in 1982. And it should be Congress. It should not be the Supreme Court legislating from the bench. Um, as to whether qualified immunity is going to fix policing, no. Uh, but for me, a lot of this is about the victims. The victims of these egregious you know, instances of misconduct deserve to have their, their say in court. Like I said, it's not actually giving them a judgment. It's just get it, giving them the opportunity to argue in front of a jury of their peers. Um, to your larger question, I am not an abolish the police kind of guy. I am not a defund the police kind of guy even. But I do believe that the way to kind of instill more trust and not just police officers, but and you know state actors at large is you know, if we can hold them accountable when they violate our rights in these flagrant ways. And right now it's very difficult to do that. You know, to Jim's point about some of these crime spikes and, you know, police officers being in a lot of kind of compromising positions with so many arrests each year, I think we have a huge overcriminalization problem. And I wish we could talk about that. You know, maybe some of these arrests shouldn't be happening for victimless crimes. Um, I hear a lot of pushback from the left on my work that I don't focus enough on race. I absolutely think that the criminal justice criminal justice system is racially biased in some ways, but that is not the entire story either. You know, it's a very kind of reductive prism to look at a very complex issue. So is it totally a race issue? No. Is it just qualified immunity? No. But I think we can talk about these root issues and actually make more strides. You know, if we look at the entire picture and not just, you know, these these little tiny debates, which are important, but no, they're not going to fix everything. We have to we have to tack, tackle the root causes. Well, we're all trying here to tackle the root causes one way or the other. But with that, we are way out of time here. Our sincere thanks to Billy and to Jim for this really wonderful, I thought, high-level, respectful, civil exchange with lots of mutual overlap. So we're really grateful to both of you for joining us here on Newsweek's The Debate. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you both. And with that, we'll be right back. This is The Debate by Newsweek. We're going to break it down, some post-debate analysis coming your way after the break. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So, Badia, your thoughts, impressions, questions, comments, concerns about this very lively and, I thought, intellectual erudite, but very respectful and civil exchange between Billy and Jim. Yeah, um, it was a little high concept. Uh, I care a lot about these issues, uh, but I, I'm not sure I was convinced that qualified immunity is really the most important piece of this really important conversation. And so coming off of this debate, I'm thinking to myself, even our debaters kind of admitted that. So I'm asking myself, well, why is this kind of this hill that so many people have chosen to die on right now? What about what about you? What are you thinking? I think what we as a society are doing in respect to kind of our general discourse and the way we talk about law enforcement and the police is somewhere between bad to atrocious to positively disgusting. Um, law enforcement is our friend. Law enforcement is there to secure the rule of law without which no just society with, can possibly exist, without, without which no communities, no humans can possibly flourish in tandem with one another as we pursue our joint conception of the common good. Now, does that mean that every cop is ipso facto a good actor? Of course not. I actually thought that Chauvin almost assuredly was guilty, at least on manslaughter charges. So no one here supports rogue egregious cops here but to me the the discussion on qualified immunity for goodness sake is just so misplaced uh, we're talking here about civil liability 
for alleged Fourth Amendment and other constitutional violations. I mean, uh, that's not where the action should be here. You should prosecute rogue cops for situations like Chauvin. That is the quintessential example from my perspective as to how you should hold police accountable um, and both kind of a retribution and a kind of remedial and deterrence perspective there as you prosecute for terrible, egregious crimes. But I think QI is just missing the forest for the trees. It kind of seems like you agree with me on that. Yeah, I mean, I, but I, I I, feel that there's not enough prosecution of rogue actors on the criminal side. So I sort of feel like the accountability question is so important that given that it's so hard to get an indictment against a cop, there should be at least this other uh, avenue for people to seek justice. Well, let me ask you this. So I, I remember it, it kind of the heart of the Antifa Black Lives Matter riots last summer and kind of the ensuing weeks after um, George Floyd's death, his tragic death, obviously, in Minneapolis. I, I remember a New York Post headline talking about how even at that time, before kind of the full national anti-police narrative really kind of sunk in in earnest, NYPD retirement applications were up over 400% on like a week-over-week basis. And, you know, I look at like the rhetoric now, especially in the aftermath of this verdict with Chauvin. And again, just to emphasize the point here, I agree that he was guilty on at least manslaughter charges. But we it is such a toxic environment for police. I, I, I think, you know, I was just in Chicago, actually, where I know you and I both spent a lot of time. And I think to myself, who in their right mind would want to be like a Chicago a, a Chicago PD police officer these days. You've got to be nuts. So I wonder what role, if any, qualified immunity has here in kind of just disincentivizing over what is already kind of looking like a fairly unappealing career choice, I think, for a lot of people, very sadly. I definitely hear that point. But at the same time, I feel like if we're weighing um, the feelings of police officers against the fact that they have a monopoly on the legitimate use of force um you know that their guns versus the feelings i feel like it's we really do need to be protecting citizens from abuses of power which is obviously the whole point of the constitution i know you don't disagree with me about that but uh, it, and and i agree with you that um if we are behaving in a way that makes people not want to be cops we are essentially screwing over our most vulnerable because they are the people who need the police the most um so i think it is really complicated and you know like i said i'm not sure that qualified immunity is the hill to die on uh, when it comes to police reform um i am really heartened to feel that i and you have a lot in common on this question that our two debaters have a lot in common on this question it's heartening to see senator tim scott making common cause with senator karen bass you know all of this bipartisan around police brutality and solving it and coming up with ways to have both accountability and um, to have the police be able to do their jobs, which, like I said, it is the most vulnerable who pay the price when the police are not able to do their jobs. I I do feel that America has come to a place where there is a lot more that unites us on this question than divides us. For sure. And just to kind of underscore that point even more here, actually, Jim's stance, what we just heard, and certainly my own stance, is not that the status quo is fine and dandy. In fact, um, you know, I'll let the listeners in on a, on a little secret here, actually. Um, last June, in the aftermath of, um, you know, of, of uh, George Floyd's death and when all this was getting discussed in Congress, I, I, I spoke with a congressman that I've been friendly with for a handful of years for like a, a while, 45 minutes. We had a long exchange, but just kind of offering my thoughts on what kind of qualified immunity reform law should look like, what a statute should look like. And I had concrete suggestions. Um, you know, one of them was um, Congress uh, statutorily overturning. There's a 2009 Supreme Court case called Pearson versus Callahan, where the court basically said that that two-pronged analysis we spoke of 
you can do either step in whichever order you want. I think that's a bad idea. I think actually courts should probably be forced to go to the actual constitutional violation step first, because otherwise, and I saw this when I was a law clerk, otherwise you can just kind of get around that by just saying it's not clearly established, so we, we don't even need to bother to look into whether you had your constitutional rights violated. Mm-hmm. So uh, that right there is an is a, is a easy and prudent measure. It should be a bipartisan measure. Anyway, I have other ideas too, but um, there's no reason to kind of take it down any further the rabbit hole than that, so to speak. But the point here is that uh, there is a lot of room for, I think, bipartisan agreement. No one agrees um, that the status quo is fine and dandy here. Uh, but that was just a really, I thought, enjoyable and uh, productive exchange. And I'm, I'm optimistic that the listeners would uh, will agree with that. I hope so, too. And don't forget that you can write to us, uh, the debate at Newsweek.com. We want to hear from you. We want to hear about the debates that are happening in your family. We want to hear about who you agreed with, who you thought won the debate. Uh, be in touch with us, and we will see you next time. This is The Debate brought to you by Newsweek. See you next time, Josh. See you next time, Bob. Yeah.